0: Hi, this is Roger Joseph Manning Jr., and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with Jay Gilbert and Michael Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. You're not going to want to miss this. This week, we sit down with some very smart people. Russ Krupnik from Music Watch, independent analyst Richard Kramer, and Beat Dapp CEO Morgan Hayden. From Billboard, if the music business keeps growing, why the layoffs? And from Music Week, industry leaders on key issues, including artist development, exports, and AI. There's that word again, (laughs) J-A-I. We keep talking about it. Well, we're glad you are all all here, I should say. Uh, Jay and I are ready to start the show right about now.
1: Stand by for transmission. This is London Coffee. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. On the air. On the air. On the air.
0: Jay, it is good to see you, my brother. Good on to see a you. Warm day here in SoCal. Yeah, it can feels you like it? Summer.
2: Yeah, it feels it good. Lovely.
0: Yeah. Lovely, lovely, lovely. We had uh, busy weeks, and we we were ships passing in the night. Yeah. We were actually at the same place on the
2: same day, but different times. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was busy fun, fun week. Yeah, we had uh, Nam. Uh, for those that uh, didn't uh, go, it was it was really cool. Um, I was actually only there one full day. Um, I did a session um, on uh, monetizing and merch and things like that that went uh, really well. It was really a lot of fun. Um, But uh, I also popped my head into the immediate family sort of Uh uh, Q&A. And, you know, we've talked about them a lot on this program. I just I just love those guys. But uh, how was your Nam experience? Oh, it was
0: fantastic. And for those that don't know, the NAMM show, N-A-M-M, it's the National Association of Music Merchants. And this is where they show all of the new gear to make music with. So everything from oboes to digital tools to everything everything in between yeah Yeah. and it's it's one of the longest-running trade shows in America it started around 1901 and uh, it's the funnest thing that I get to do first of all just you just go and you know pull a guitar off the rack and play it and you see lots and we you know we're getting to an age where we know so many people in the business and it was fun to see artists and people that work in the in that side of the world and I had a good time you know got to got to do some interviews and and meet a a bunch of people and see a bunch of people I haven't seen for a long time. Yeah. And this is kind of the first, the NAM show has been historically always in January here in, uh, in Anaheim actually. Um, but because of, so of course we got one in in 2020 just before COVID hit and then missed 2021. And they did kind of a truncated one, mid year in 2022 and last year. So this was the first kind of big one and it's yeah. an international show. So you've got people from all over the world there and
2: it was a lot of artists and yeah. performances
0: and uh, you did one of the
2: workshops and yeah, it was fun. it's a good time. I, heard, I had read good that time. there was something like 150,000 people uh, this year that went yes. through those doors and <laughs> it man, was packed. it was, it was just a blast. And I think next year I'm going to try to do more than one day. Cause you can't see the thing in one day. There's just too much. Mm. Uh, too to much. See, but, Absolutely. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed that. A um, couple of things before we jump in. Um, the Grammys are coming up um, Sunday, February 4th. It's the 66th uh, Grammy Awards. Um, you can see that on CBS and Paramount Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and I were talking before we hit record that there's sometimes there's a little bit of confusion around some of the uh, categories. And I listened to the Trapital podcast this last week, which is always good. Dan Runcie's, right? He had Zach O'Malley Greenberg on, and they talked about the business behind the Grammys. So if you want to see how the sausage is made a little bit, check out the uh, most recent Trapital podcast. And you and I were sort of talking about... Some of these things are a little bit confusing, like record of the year versus song of the year. And they, they even point this out in the podcast. And for those that don't know, simply put, record of the year deals with a specific recording of a song and recognizes right. the artists, producers, engineers, you know, anyone that contributes to that recording while song of the year that really deals with the composition of that song and, and recognizes the songwriters who wrote the song. So that's just a sample of some of the things that you'll learn um, when you listen to the Trapital podcast this week. Pretty cool.
0: Always a worthwhile listen. And, uh, and as you know, I've mentioned a couple of times uh, the, the last couple Grammy award presentation shows have been just awesome. Really fantastic. Oh, yeah. And, and, uh, it's it's kind of a must-see. I mean, it's always been very interesting to watch, but it was always kind of stodgy there near the end yeah. of of
2: or the last few, a few years back. And they've really turned the corner. Yeah, they it's really have. I love watching the show. Yeah, yeah, me too. The other thing I wanted to bring up um, is that I got a note from our friend Bruno Del Granado. You know, he's the head of Latin music over at uh, or Latin music touring over at CAA, and he sort of keeps us you know up to date on what's going on in uh, Latin music. And he sent me this article, which I hadn't gotten to yet. It was from Billboard, written by uh, Lila Cobo. And the headline was, Spanish is now the most consumed language for music in the world. Did I say most? Spanish is now the second most consumed language for music in the world. And uh, really, thanks to increased consumption of artists like uh, Peso Pluma, Spanish language is slowly eating away at English's market share among the most popular songs. Yeah, among the top 10,000 tracks measured
0: by Luminate in its recently released 2023 year-end music report, streaming share of English language content went down by 3.8% since 2021, which begs the question, where did that 3.8%
2: go? Well, it went fully into the streaming share of Spanish language tracks, which went up by 3.8%. So today, Spanish is the second most consumed language in music, both in the US and globally right in the United
0: States the top 3 languages in music consumption by percentage of the total are of course English which at 88.8% followed by Spanish 8.1% and Korean in a distant third at 0.7% but it's funny you know when i was at NAM i went over to the Honer booth and I'm, i i want to get an accordion and i was oh, wow. uh, i was talking to the Honer guy about and he's he's he was from South Texas and he plays the button accordion and we were talking about how much Spanish language music has really jumped up in the last couple of years, and again, like you and I have mentioned, you know, uh, with with streaming, you can now be adventurous. You can, you know, just start listening and and really kind of following your muse. Yeah. And again, this whole Spanish language thing will continue to rise yeah. you know, in these states. Yeah,
2: it's here to stay. Um, the other thing uh, that we talked about a little bit before we hit record was that there was a, a story in TechCrunch um, written by Ivan Meta. Um, And the headline was, Apple will pay artists more to have a spatial audio version on Apple Music. So Apple's going to pay up to 10% uh, of additional royalties if an artist has all of their songs in spatial audio. Uh, The extra money doesn't depend on users playing the spatial audio version, though. So according
0: to Apple, this change is not only meant to reward higher quality content, but also to ensure that artists are being compensated for the time and investment they put
2: into mixing in Spatial. That makes a lot of sense, because you have to spend a little bit more money for those Spatial audio, whether it's Sony 360 or Dolby Atmos. It takes a little bit more money, and you and I have talked uh, quite a bit about Spatial audio. We're big fans. We've been in the studio. I mean, you brought me up to... uh, Oh uh, hi! To listen to some amazing um, spatial audio mixes, and man, when you hear that in a studio, it's it's breathtaking, Thank really. You. It is breathing. It gives a goosebumps, but it does take
0: time and it takes money. And uh, I, I, I applaud this from Apple. Good, good,
2: good on them. Yeah, we we had three conversations as you alluded to in the intro this week um, that we recorded, and we're going to drop into this episode because they're so good. Um, very smart people, as you alluded to, Russ Krupnik from Music Watch, independent analyst Richard Kramer. Uh, from my favorite podcast, Bubble Trouble, uh, Will Page, um, and also uh, Beat Dap CEO Morgan Haydick. Uh, The first one, Russ Krupnick, you know, he wrote this article that we talked about last week. Um, it was titled Monetizing Music Fans, Billion Dollar Opportunity or Super Fantasy? And we've been talking so much about super fans lately, and he sort of took a slightly contrarian look um, at, at super fans. Indeed. Russ is a managing partner of Music Watch, a company
0: dedicated to marketing research and industry analysis for the music and entertainment industry. He is also an adjunct professor at NYU Steinhardt Music Business Graduate Program, where he lectures on marketing strategy, pricing practices, and forecasting.
2: Yeah, he's just a cool dude. So uh, without further ado, let's listen into to a, a quick conversation with Russ Krupnick. In your article you point out that Lucian Grange from UMG and Robert Kinsel from Warner Music Group they've both recently suggested that music fandom is under monetized uh, both of them seeing uh, squeezing more dollars from music fans as a path to growth but you point out that consumer research consumer research suggests that most fans really aren't ready to spend to enhance those relationships. So tell us about your research and, and what you
3: learned. Right. Well, just by, by way of background, every year for the last more than 20 years, uh, we do an annual study of uh, of Americans to understand their music and entertainment consumption and habits and listening habits and what they're buying um, attitudes and motivations. And when I start to see some of these things being spoken of a lot like superfans or as we were chatting before, high res audio or vinyl, you know, we kind of home in on those and say, OK, well, what, what do consumers really think about that? Um, and in the study this year, I, I was curious to look at two things. I wanted to know, A, what are they doing now um, that might represent super fan experiences uh, and B, what is the kind of interest or or potential. So if you start out with the first piece, what are they doing now? What we learned is about 3% uh, of Americans over the age of 13 would say that they've engaged in some kind of super fan experience. It's you know, some kind of, of a, a VIP package created by artists, um, some kind of ticket bundle a special release vinyl or cd and and so on you know all, all of the products that could be de- developed for superfans. so that's three percent just you know to make it easier for the audience that translates to about seven and a half million superfans, fans uh, which is not at all trivial i mean just by way of contrast i think last year we had about 18 million vinyl buyers so it's not a whole, it's not the numbers who are streaming or paying for streaming, but it's not a trivial number. So the next thing was to say, well, what is what is the potential for this? So we asked people to describe themselves. And we want to know, you know, are you really a super fan for your favorite artist? Do you go to their shows and follow them on social and buy their merch? And most importantly, would you be willing to spend more on VIP experiences for that artist? Uh, On the other hand, you know, hey, I'm just interested in listening to them. And about 20% fell into the first bucket, and about 40% fell into the latter bucket. So if you're a glass half empty kind of person, you could say, well, 20% yes, 40% no, that's not so great. The way I would also look at it is, hey, if you think about it today, it's 3%. It's potentially 20 percent. You know that's a factor of seven to one versus where we are now. So there are millions and millions of people out there who could potentially be monetized uh, as superfans in some way or another. Uh, so again, I'll take the glass half full, look and say, hey, we're there's very few right now, but there could be. I would agree, many more. Um, just think about if we could get another because, I, you know, I was talking about the opportunity. If we could get another 10 million of those folks to be super fans uh, and I'm just speaking about in the United States alone, 10 million, we get them to spend another hundred dollars, which frankly isn't a whole lot of money in my view um, for premium experiences, whether it's a, a physical product or whether it's merch or, or something, uh, another hundred bucks. That's $1 billion just in the U.S. alone. So I, I think when when uh, Robert Kinsel says, yes, it's it's untapped and under monetized. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. And the data supports his point of view.
2: Yeah. It's like the old joke, you know, a million here, a million there. Pretty soon you're talking real money.
3: Right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right.
2: Russ, thanks again for uh, joining us. We'll talk again soon.
3: Looking forward to it. Great. Thank you.
0: It's so again. It's so, and I think I mentioned this last week. Even it's you know it's so wonderful that we have an opportunity to not only report on a lot of stuff that we find interesting and fascinating, but then also at times we get to have
2: some of the folks come on and chat with us. Oh my gosh, it is priceless. uh, It is so much fun. And uh, I think uh, Russ and I met up. I think it was Music Biz Association conference last time, and and just hit it off over a cup of coffee. And you know he has these great reports uh, that Music Watch puts out. In fact, there's a new one coming pretty soon. And I'd love to have him come in and help us uh, break it down. The other conversation, uh, two of three, um, which was incredible. Um, this week, I got to speak with uh, analyst Richard Kramer, um, and it, it was so much fun. He talked really candidly, you know, about how the market is viewed, Spotify and music streaming. He's a co-host of Bubble Trouble um, with Will Page, and I've often talked about that podcast because I don't miss an episode and. It's, it's really great, and the way they describe it, it it's, it's conversations between economist and author Will Page and independent analyst Richard Kramer, and it, they lay out inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. And I know that sounds really you know technical and over your head, and it's, they make it fun, they're sassy, um, and they really sort of explain how these things work, and I, I really love it. And uh, Richard founded the research firm Arate. They are the leading
0: independent global technology research firm. They recently pioneered uh, the the model Honest Financial Markets Research, free from conflicts of interest. And uh, (laughs)
2: that's always appreciated in that world. Yeah. Anyway, uh, without further ado, again, I mean, brace yourself. Uh, Here's my conversation uh, with Richard Kramer. All right, Richard. You were quoted in the Wall Street Journal recently about Spotify. You said Spotify has consistently led people to believe they would have a profitable business that would justify their valuation. And uh, they use capital raised on the back of that valuation to chase rainbows. None of those rainbows were captured. How has the market viewed Spotify since its 2018 IPO?
4: Uh, Hi, Jay. Um, There's a lot to unpack there. And the first thing I'll quickly correct is that Spotify didn't do an IPO. They did a direct listing and that meant they avoided some of the scrutiny that kind of happens to, to companies going public when they go public, the, the uncomfortable questions they need to be answering about a business model, which is fundamentally, as you know, having worked at the big labels, uh, a distribution business for other companies. So uh, there were, at, at the time, any number of ideas that the company was kicking around, you knew that they did Spotify for artists. And uh, they had this idea that they've been working on for many years now of all these two-sided marketplace services. Uh, and, you know, more recently uh, in the pandemic, the stock went absolutely ballistic because of the expectation that we would all be listening to hours and hours of podcasts like my own bubble trouble. mm mm-hmm. Uh, and and then since then, now Spotify is doing audiobooks and, and lots of – and they want to do video and so forth. But throughout that all, the company has really not generated any material profits or cash flow, certainly when you exclude the working capital benefit of they collect from me and everybody else uh, on, at the beginning of the month, and they pay their creditors in 90 days. So – It's very easy when you have a a, a big business like that, which could go in any number of directions, to think, why not try them all? Especially when you've been through a direct listing, been given a lot of money, and uh, you go through a period where the cost of capital is near zero to borrow.
2: According to Luminate's recent year-end report, of the 184 million tracks that they measured – 152 million or around 86% had 1000 or fewer plays on music services last year. So that's over 45 million that had no plays at all. Spotify is positioning themselves as an audio company instead of a music company uh, investing in, like you just mentioned, podcasts, audio books. How can Spotify and other DSPs create more value and confidence you know, from this market?
4: Well, I think you just Went through about three separate questions we should answer there. Uh, Maybe we should break them down one by one. All right. Uh, So the first one is about just how many tracks there are on Spotify and how difficult it is for even middling artists that do get listened to to get any sort of revenue out of it. Now, of course, as you mentioned, Spotify has about a third of the market. So those artists have to get paid from any number of sources. But as you also know, uh, if you think of Spotify's business as a distribution business and think of that product they're distributing being beer as opposed to music, now that's a consumable and music you can listen to again and again. But imagine you opened the warehouse and said, any brand that, it, that wants to store their beer there can just stick it in there. Well, very soon you'd be building tons and tons of warehouses and filling them up and finding your favorite beer would be darn difficult, right? So Spotify, by opening itself up as a platform, which includes professional and what used to be called, before we talked about the creator economy, user-generated content. Remember that with the early days of YouTube? Yeah. User-generated content. The crazy UGC. idea that we'd all be taking videos and, and uploading them somewhere. Who th- who'd have thought it? And so Spotify became that platform for all music and in a a much more open way than its peers did but of course that means it's polluted with all sorts of nonsense and you know i could be meeting uh the some folks uh from btap for example in london here this week uh who believe there's extensive stream fraud on platforms like spotify um and the combination of all these tracks which are never listened to and all these infinite number of white noise tracks or happy birthday in Hungarian or what have you, um, You know, they're all there to grab a piece of the the pie that gets divvied up. And just back to our core issue of chasing rainbows and running a company like Spotify, there's got to be a huge amount of work required and cost required just dealing with that avalanche, that torrent of new content that never generates any revenue.
2: A friend of mine coined this phrase, Spotify drunk, and he he did that to describe how myopic music business reporting is today. Why do you think there's so much attention placed on Spotify and really so much less on DSPs like, you know, Apple Music, Amazon Music, a- and the others?
4: Well, a couple of reasons. Um, the first one, obviously, is that music distribution is Spotify's core business, Whereas for Amazon, Apple, and YouTube music, they are literally a drop in the ocean of companies with vast uh, revenue bases and cash flows. So where Spotify stands and falls over time as to whether it can cobble together a profitable business distributing music via streaming and all these other ancillary services or content or what have you and selling ads... These other businesses, you know, it, frankly, doesn't matter. It doesn't even make it really to the earnings calls. Uh, it's barely mentioned. Maybe they'll have a little bit of a press release once a year and and throw a few stats around. I mean, I don't know. It's probably been over a year since we heard officially how many Apple Music subscribers there are. But let's take one other issue for Spotify, which is it's a classic founder-led company, and. Several things I've observed in 30 years of watching tech founders is they tend to be insecure and like a lot of publicity. I think you can think of one particular electric vehicle and social media platform guy who seems to want a lot of attention on themselves. And they think it's it's in a way part of the content marketing or important for the business development of their services to draw attention to themselves as the plucky upstarts against the big tech giants. And because of that, you have – in a company like Spotify, probably an an inordinate number of PR and comms people whose job it is to ensure that the business gets talked about all the time. And you also have it as a confluence of all these music industry celebrities you know, the one out of 78 songs in the U.S. this last year streamed was Taylor Swift, right? Right. You know, the, the interest in the NFL has doubled since Taylor Swift shows up at Kansas City Chiefs games, <laughs> right? And all that silliness, right? But but clearly Spotify feeds off that and is part and parcel of that. Please include us in the global conversation. Uh, much more so. Uh, and I, I I wouldn't be surprised to say that you or think that you have the same with Netflix versus all the other streaming services combined, uh, and the ones that have the lowest profile, uh, or, or don't get talked about in the same degree. You know, it, it's, it's not it, Spotify is, is the, is, is spoken about as that standalone service that either proves or disproves the case that you can exist outside these big tech companies.
2: All right, Richard, thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. All right. See you, man.
4: Take care Jay. Great, Thank you. Nice to see you.
2: Well, he is nothing if not entertaining, isn't he?
0: He's uh, yeah. well, and it, you know, you know, I've talked about this so much. It's, it's just I don't know that world, and I so appreciate having not only folks that can explain that world, but also explain it with a sense of humor and kind of put it in perspective. Yeah. And- it's It's wonderful, yeah
2: he he makes it so even knuckleheads like us can actually understand <laughs> you know what he's talking about and again, if you haven't listened to the Bubble Trouble uh, podcast, it is enlightening and it is just so enjoyable to listen to and uh, one last thing before we get into our stories um, if you've been reading anything um, about streaming fraud, streaming fraud protection, you know, that's been such a hot topic lately and people will pontificate about what percentage of streams are actually fraudulent. Well, In order to find out, the guy that they go to is typically Morgan Hayduck, and he's the founder and CEO of a company called BeatDap, B-E-A-T-D-A-P, BeatDap. And they're really the market leader in audit and fraud detection software for music labels, streaming services, all of that stuff. And it's been such a hot topic that I wanted to ask uh, Morgan to pop on and and break it down for us a little bit. So here is the conversation with Morgan Hayduck from BeatDap. Morgan, uh, thanks for joining me. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, Jay. So a couple of things. Before we jump into, um, you know, the user-centric versus pro rata thing, talk a little bit about what you've built over at beatap
5: Thanks for the question. And, and you know, we've, we've built, I think, the most sophisticated and effective fraud detection technology, purpose-built for the music industry. Um, and it comes at a point where I think we need it more than ever, um, the revenue in streaming in particular is exploding and it's you know showing signs of continued growth in markets all over the world and ensuring that artists and rights holders are paid correctly fairly and appropriately is you know critical to the sustained success of the industry and so our view is like many other online industries that have come before music once the revenue pot gets to be sufficiently large enough and the channels are there to exploit it fraudsters step in and so we've decided that we're going to put them on notice and, and really make it our mission to make music a much harder target for people who wish to commit fraud in our space.
2: That's amazing. Um, talk a little bit about something you and I were sort of bouncing back and forth. And that is, you know, we talk a lot about um, the user centric versus pro rata model uh, today. Talk a little bit about what that is and is either better for fraud detection
5: Good question. Let me step back even outside of music for a second. My view on this is that if there was an economic model in online industries of any shape and size, advertising, e-commerce, you name it, um, if there was an economic model that solved the problem of fraud, someone would have implemented it already and we would have a bit of a roadmap at least to follow. The truth is fraudsters are adaptive and as long as the path into the platform, the path into the industry is there, almost irrespective of the economics, they'll work to try to exploit it. So I, for lots of reasons, people are positive about Parada, positive about user-centric, positive about other economic models that have been considered. And I try not to stray into the sort of broader debate about which one is best, but from the perspective of fraud, the way I think about it is this, in the user-centric model, the most valuable type of account is the dormant premium subscriber and platforms don't share the dormant account figures for obvious reasons, but we know it's you know multiple percentage points, sometimes double digit percentage points or more of accounts that in a given month don't stream at all. The ability to co-opt one of those accounts in a model where each stream is worth, you know if it's one stream in one month, that's a $10 stream or a $7 stream. Um, that's the most effective way to generate revenue in that model. And so what I expect will happen is if everyone tomorrow turned over to uh, user-centric, for a month or two, we would find a lot of anomalies that were evidence of bots running in the ProRata system that are now obvious in a new user-centric model. And we actually do this. We model both types of um, economic models in our detection to try to find the obvious fraud that would show up in user-centric and doesn't show up in ProRata. But for a month or two, I think we'd catch a bunch of stuff. And then the fraudsters would adapt. And what they would do is they would start trying to steal more legitimate accounts. And use those, particularly the dormant ones, um, as their means to extract revenue rather than trying to run up the score with a bot and stream 5,000 times in a month and not get caught, they would find dormant accounts and they would stream 11 times. And so that presents just a new vector of attack and an adaptation to an economic model that I don't think fundamentally eliminates fraud. The last point on this that I'll make, which I think is one of the most interesting and people are usually kind of aware of how many passwords and usernames are out there available on the internet. But something like 90% of login attempts on consumer facing websites are what's called credential stuffing. And that is just bad actors testing to see if an illegally obtained set of username and password works on a different website. And once those accounts are confirmed as effective, they're packaged up and sold. So you want to buy, Experian has a data breach, and you want to go buy those and test to see if they work on American Airlines and Kruger and Spotify cool. There's someone in the sort of underbelly of the internet, packaging those accounts up and selling them to you or to, not to you, but to someone uh, to do this stuff. So it's just, it's way easier to obtain account account credentials um, that I think people appreciate.
2: Wow. Morgan, thanks for clearing that up for us. Super fascinating. We'd love to have you back on to cover some of these things. Congratulations on the growth and uh, the success so far. Where can people learn more about BeatDap?
5: BeatDap.com. Uh, come to our website. Our emails are for Andrew and I, Morgan at beatdap.com and Andrew at beatdap.com. We're always happy to hear from people, and we're on social as well. So feel free to drop us a line there.
2: All right, thank you, Morgan. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. That's 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 great, boy. Really interesting. So we don't typically do three audio drops in one show, but in order <laughs> to talk to these smart people, it was just such an honor, and um, it just it's always best when you get it straight from the horse, horse's mouth.
0: Yes. And we got to get him when we can. And so uh, it just worked out that way. Yeah. And uh, it was it was really interesting. Thanks for, for putting that all together. Yeah. Uh, so let's jump into some of the stories. Uh, the, our story, the first one that we're going to talk about right now is from Billboard. If the music business keeps growing, why the layoffs? And this is from our friend Glenn Peoples. Yeah. And uh, as he starts to say, media business layoffs are hitting the music industry with more to come from Universal Music. And perhaps other labels, and ugh,
2: yeah, we've both been through it. It totally sucks if you're the one getting laid off. Oh, out. it sure does. And you know, we've talked about layoffs. I mean, that's people's lives, and it's it matters. And there's been so many of them. Like, if you listen to the episode last week, we sort of break down a lot of these uh, these layoffs. Um, this piece is so timely because we were sort of asking that same question. Like, the music business is growing. We saw the Luminate report. Mm-hmm. Everything looks so positive. And so why the layoffs? And I, I love how he sort of breaks
0: it down. Indeed. It says, During an October earnings call, Universal Music Group CFO Boyd Muir told investors the company was conducting a careful review, that's in quotes, Of its costs. In the world of public company statements, that was a hint that UMG expected to make cuts to its workforce of roughly 10,000, specifically hundreds of jobs, in the first
2: quarter of the year, as Bloomberg later revealed. Yeah, yeah, that, I mean, they say hundreds of jobs and and they haven't given a specific number or where those are coming from, but, you know, it's it's horrifying. You know, UMG. You know they have plenty of company. Until last year, the music business had well mostly escaped the job cutting that ravaged industries that depend on adver- advertising. In 2022 and 2023, that was still best of times for the industry, which had found double-digit growth in streaming. Uh, Since 2020, 10 music companies have gone public to take advantage of investors' enthusiasm for music, including labels and publishers, you know, like UMG, Warner Music Group, HYBE, Reservoir, Believe, Roundhill, you know, streaming services, Deezer, Angami, Cloud Music, and live entertainment firms, you know, like a a spinoff of uh, MSG Entertainment. Right. So that changed during 2023. In March,
0: WMG's new CEO, Robert Kinsel, a former YouTube executive, laid off around 270 people. That was 4% of the company's workforce. To focus more on technology initiatives and, in quotation marks, new skills for artist and songwriter development, mm. as he wrote in a memo to staff at the time, downtown music holdings, owners of CD Baby, uh, Fuga, Song Trust, and more also thinned its payroll in May. BMG laid off about 30 people in October. Digital music companies fared even worse in 2023. Spotify cut about 23 percent of its workforce in two rounds of Layoffs, Tidal cut 10%, SoundCloud cut 8%, and Bandcamp
2: chopped half its headcount after being acquired by SongTrader. Oh my gosh, but. But Universal Music Group, uh, the company's revenue in the first nine months of 2023 was up 9.4%. We talked about this, you know, on a constant currency uh, basis, 6.8% as reported due to foreign currency fluctuations. So if you want to know the details, more than two years after spinning off the former corporate uh, parent, Vivendi, UMG is a profitable hit-making machine that owned 29.4% of the U.S. recorded music market last year, easily besting Sony Music's 18.9% and Warner Music Group's 16%. Well, it has Taylor Swift, uh, Morgan Wallen, <laughs> Drake, and many other big stars. So perhaps understandably, um, there's been talk that other labels could follow with cuts of you know one size or another. So UMG's decision may
0: be the most dramatic example of just how profoundly the music business is changing and how quickly. Lean is the new black. (laughs) Bloat, or anything that evokes it, is out. The old ways of finding, developing, and marketing artists no longer work the way they used to. How big a radio promotion department does a label really need? How many radio promotion departments does its parent company need? at a time when radio no longer plays an important, as important a part in breaking hits. Social media and data analysis mattered just as much, so could developing markets that once didn't account for much revenue? Wow.
2: You know, these are the things that we hear at meetings sort of spoken about of the time. But, you know, mm-hmm. of course, Glenn finds it and, you know, shines a light on it. Um, UMG's next focus, uh, Chairman CEO Lucian Grange wrote in a memo to staff in early January, will be creating the blueprint for the labels of the future. Uh, and to do that by building the technology, to to to, to do more work in house, expanding and developing markets, and finding ways to better monetize superfans. Well, we just talked about that. That requires moving resources away from the legacy business, uh, Muir said in an uh, October earnings call to quote benefit from all of the opportunities that we see ahead end quote. What that will mean for how UMG re- reshuffles its organizational chart remains to be seen, but it's already building an artist services business with Virgin Music Group and making aggressive moves in developing markets and investments in um, TM Ventures in India, Chabaka in the United Arab Emirates. And for those that haven't even been keeping up on the news of uh, Virgin Music Group, that's sort of this new group uh, combination of You know, uh, in grooves um, with Mm -hmm. what used to be known as Caroline, which became Virgin Label and Artist Services and, you know, part of what was uh, M Theory. So put all those powerful teams together and that's the Virgin Music Group that he's referring to. So other music music companies are also reassessing
0: their priorities. BMG uh, were spurned by new Thomas uh, by new CEO Thomas Coastfield as a response to an international marketing structure that didn't meet expectations and duplicated the efforts of local teams, he wrote
2: in a memo to a staff. Businesses are repositioning themselves slightly to become more competitive. Um, Downtown music president Peter Van Ryn says one must always be mindful and not get complacent. He added, noting that the company needed to stay nimble enough to respond to the marketplace. Quote, what you do see in general is the music industry is maturing. The digital growth is still there, but it's slowing down. Well, as the article goes on to say, the world is
0: changing, too. Along with the major labels, companies like Believe and Reservoir Media are investing in Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and other regions where music revenue is growing. And both new companies and the established majors are expanding their artist services business to court creators who can now choose from among an increasing number of alternatives to a traditional major label deal. Sony acquired the artist service company AWOL in 2022. UMG is building up Virgin, and uh, WMG's Kinsel wrote in an early January memo that he wants to augment services to the in quotation marks, middle class of artists,
2: and scale up the company's publishing administration business. Yeah, public companies in the music industry face pressure from investors to constantly improve their bottom lines, especially as streaming growth sort of levels off. Two and a half years ago, we started making cuts because we knew the market was no longer just about growth, uh, said Rob Ellen. He's the CEO of uh, the streaming company Live One which is cutting up to 100 staffers in a restructuring, you had to be profitable. Right, the growth over profits era finally ended at Spotify too,
0: when the streaming giant announced it would cut 17% of its global workforce in December. CEO Daniel Ek explained that costs were too high, efficiency was too low, and too few people contributed to opportunities with real impact. Cutting roughly 1,500 jobs and seeking a replacement for CFO Paul Vogel, Eck wrote in an open letter, were necessary to become
2: relentlessly resourceful. Wow, 1,500 jobs. Record labels and music publishers have better margins than Spotify, right? Um which will rarely turn a profit but investors also expect more of them in the first half of 2021 UMG then a subsidiary of Vivendi had a margin of about 21.5% in earnings you know EBITDA earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization and told investors in August it expected to reach the quote unquote mid 20s soon Two years later, revenue had increased 34%, but its EBITDA margin, which we just described, was almost unchanged at 21.5%, right? With layoffs can come better margins, restructuring saved Warner Music Group $19 million in fiscal year that ended September 30th. And Barclays analysts uh, estimated that UMG's layoffs could save the company $70 million annually. Wow. But to those
0: who remember the crisis caused by the death of the CD, this talk of restructuring might have a familiar ring. And that would be me. Yes, it does. (laughs) As As piracy ravaged the music business, the majors scaled back their physical distribution businesses, sold their CD pressing plants. And retooled for a digital world. That's why Grange reminded investors that UMG is no stranger to managing disruption. He said, we've got decades of experience in executing cost-cutting programs in the various cycles of the industry, right back to the piracy days, he said during the October earnings call. And currently, he said, we're seeing a change in the business. Well, 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 that is just, uh, you know, your your heart breaks for the people that are on the chopping block, yeah. and we've both been there. and um, It doesn't feel good. What you don't see, yeah. it doesn't feel good, but what you don't see is that Lucian is willing to cut his own salary to make uh, that business more profitable. And, and so you see a lot of these... Uh, folks making these statements that are making an awful lot of
2: money. Well, my, uh, my hat's off to Glenn peoples, our friend over at billboard for this piece, Mm -hmm. because it's something, um, very concise and succinct that we needed, you know, and again, that headline, if the music business keeps growing, why the layoffs? And I think he sort of digs in and, and answers that, uh, that question for us. Well, Jay, as we get near the end of the program, we do want to make sure we thank
0: our sponsors. The Your morning coffee podcast is brought to you by friend by our friends at Banzoogle. Zoogle. For over 20 years, Banzoogle has made it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music. Now they've added a brand new EPK plan so that musicians can create a professional single-page electronic press kit in minutes. All the features you need to design an EPK are already built in, including fully customizable templates, preset EPK page layouts, music players, images, text bio, and video embeds, a gig calendar and press quotes, and access to Banzoogle's award-winning support team seven days a week. The new EPK EPK plan starts at just $6.95 per month, and your morning coffee podcast listeners can go to Banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days. Then use the promo code Morning EPK, all one word, to get 10% off the first year of the new EPK plan subscription. That's Banzoogle.com slash promo code Morning
2: Coffee EPK when you sign up to the EPK plan. Yeah. And we're also brought to you by Hypebot. Since 2004, Hypebot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. Hypebot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. You betcha! Bands in
0: town. Over 80 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform, connecting over 590,000 artists with their superfans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms.
2: Yeah, and we also want to thank the Music Business Association. Uh, We've got the Music Biz Conference uh, coming up soon. It creates the rooms in which important conversations that shape the future of our industry, that's where they take place. It it represents more than 90% of the music industry at large. The association serves as the connective tissue for the global music business and provides a trusted forum where ideas and collaborations can flourish. So join us for the Music Biz 2024 Conference in Nashville, Tennessee, May 13th through the 16th and let me tell you every week i get to hang out with my
0: good friend jay gilbert he's a music industry consultant he's the curator of the weekly your morning coffee newsletter and a former executive with universal music sony music and the warner music groups
2: and an all-around groovy guy Uh, it's a highlight of my week is chatting with mike etchart longtime host of sound and vision radio formerly of sst records warner music group capital emi and universal music group Big thanks to BandZoogle, HypeBot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. We certainly appreciate all that support. And our our third and final story uh, today was from Music Week. uh, And the headline was, Industry Leaders on Key Issues, Including Artist Development, Exports, and AI. And if you don't know about Music Week, you know, we check in on them uh, quite often. You know, they've been sort of the leading trade uh, brand for UK music industry. Uh, for over 50 years and really essential reading for anyone who wants to understand the music business from vinyl to streaming from that UK perspective, you know, and as well as covering industry news, their editorial team creates exclusive content that dives into, you know, key industry issues. Uh, check out their website. They do. It, it is UK centric, but I, I pull some really great articles from there each week. A new
0: year brings new purpose, and with it, Music Week's roundup of what some of the leading lights in the music industry are wishing for over the next 12 months. So here, they delve into hopes and dreams of a range of leading names from across the business. Our friend Merck Mercuratus over at Hypnosis Songs says, my hope every year is that the recorded music industry will recognize the work of songwriters and reward them properly. Amen. No one in our industry should get paid more than songwriters, without whom there would be nothing. I'm I'm delighted that every year we are making progress and the narrative is changing due to our
2: efforts and the efforts of a few others. Yeah, I thought that was uh, the most important one of the list. But there's some really smart people, you know, in this piece that they asked, you know, sort of for their wish list. And one was uh, Suzanne Bull from Attitude is Everything. And she said, my hope is that the industry starts to regard access and environmental sustainability as part of the same conversation. We've all heard the phrase that there is no music on a dead planet. Well, there's no access on a dead planet either. (laughs) right.
0: Uh, Janella Pow over at Apple Music in the UK says, I'm, I'm excited to see women championing women and more industry programs around championing women. Our platoon team ran an event in 2023 called She Runs the Boards, which was focused on celebrating engineers, producers and songwriters. I just hope there's more that the business can do to celebrate women and make it feel like a safe space and
2: industry for women. Yeah, and continuing on this wish list for the year, Emma Banks from CAA said, "We are coming off an incredible strong, incredibly strong year of live touring in 2023. I hope that 2024 can be just as good. Stronger still would be even better. Also that we work out ways to reinvest in live music and performance across venues of all sizes from the smallest club to the biggest stadium."
0: Yes, and uh, Kenya King over at Mobo said, I'm trying not to sound like a broken record, but I hope that the industry will continue to push forward to increase diversity and inclusion, both on stage and behind the scenes. Absolutely. So <laughs> good hopes for this year. And on that note, we're going to wrap up episode 181. We want to thank everyone for listening in. Jane, I certainly appreciate it. And we'll be back next week again with the Your Morning Coffee podcast. Mm-hmm.
1: You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.